Welcome to this week's edition of the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host. Sketchy Richie. And on today's episode of the Sword and Staff, uh, Richie, we're going to be doing things a little bit different today. We went into the studio this morning to record this episode, and as we were fixing to do this episode, we heard a loud explosion, yep. and a transformer <laughs> blew up. And There went the power. Yeah, there went the power, so... We were sitting there without power, and I was like, well, how are we going to get today's episode out? So we hightailed it back to my house. We got the mic set up. We grabbed one of the mics and brought it back to the house. And so today, Richie and I are recording with one microphone between the two of us. Two of us. We're doing it omnidirectional style. Yep. And so the audio may not be as good as it typically is. Um, it may sound like that we have a, a microphone sitting in a big room between the two of us, and that's because we do, yep. and so uh, so if it's a little bit different today, that's that's the reason why. So, but we still yet hope that you guys enjoy the episode we have uh, planned out for you guys today. We think that you will. We think that the content is going to be interesting because today we're going to be talking about C.S. Lewis and whether or not if we believe that C.S. Lewis was an arch heretic or not, <laughs> and uh, so. Here's a little bit of background for everybody who... Um, I think if anybody's listened to us before, they kind of know our answer to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, so here's a little bit of background for people who may not be tracking with us. So um, recently, we were sent um, a message on Instagram by one of our listeners, and the post that was sent to us was from an uh, like a discernment apologetics ministry on yeah. Instagram. And um, I'm actually looking for it here. Um, it's called Fit for Faith Ministries was the the ministry. And so it's uh, Fit for Faith underscore ministries on Instagram. So publicly putting them out there so you guys can go and check them out and check out this post. But um, the post, the image says, C.S. Lewis was a fraud and a wolf. Avoid his materials. Oh, and boy. So, uh, but we had a, a, a listener send us this post and ask us about it. And so, um, since we're big fans of C.S. Lewis, um, I told the, the person who sent it to us, it would, it would probably just be best that we did an entire episode on C.S. Lewis and kind of dove into some of these topics. And there's a real, there's a few reasons why I thought that would probably be more necessary than just answering it in a message. Um, the first reason is because um, the post that we were sent, it, it made a lot of claims, which yeah. means that it would have taken time to work through all of it. I just didn't have that kind of time. But the second reason is because for a while now, before all the woke stuff kind of took over in Christendom, right? That's the conversations that seem to be happening out there nowadays, the woke and the woke stuff and you know, critical race theory and all that that wild stuff. Um, this was something that was kind of becoming common. So more and more evangelicals were starting to like refer to C.S. Lewis as problematic. And some even went as far to say that he was unorthodox in some ways. And so now it's kind of taken a back seat with all the other stuff going on in the world. But, you know, a few examples of this is the post that we're going to be talking about today. But then there was one from uh, Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition. He did an article on C.S. Lewis some years ago. And, and he kind of made some claims that Lewis was unorthodox on certain points. And 
Kevin DeYoung is pretty influential. Anyway, uh, but I, I wanted to have this conversation for those reasons, right? It's kind of, people were talking about C.S. Lewis and people were starting to, uh, you know, to think about Lewis in some ways, to dive a little bit deeper into him. And, and here's the deal. I don't think that people were thinking about Lewis um, from the perspective that we're thinking about him from. I don't think that people are familiar with his kind of way of thinking, his type of lingo, the type, the way that he uses words. It's the same thing with like J.R.R. Tolkien, right? Yeah. Like they have a particular vocabulary and they may mean something different by a particular word than what someone else might, may mean by it. And we've spent time talking about Lewis. We spent time talking about Tolkien and so we felt like that we would probably be able to address the majority of this stuff right, in this yeah. article and, and probably be helpful. So um, so anyway, um, that and honestly, I, I really just wanted to, this episode to kind of become a go-to resource for people who kind of run across this stuff that they're going to see online about C.S. Lewis and, and all that. So, But Richie, here's the, we're going to start working through the, uh, the post from uh, Fit for Faith Ministries now. Okay. And uh, I'll just read it, and we'll go through point by point, and we'll just kind of dissect it. But it says, Recently, uh, a part of my world broke into pieces related to C.S. Lewis. Some years ago, I sensed the Narnia series to be wrong and never read any of those books, but read mere Christianity based on its popularity. Back then with a critical review, but overall with an appreciation, feeded also through mainstream Christianity, esteeming C.S. Lewis as a great Christian, I was deceived like so many of us. C.S. Lewis was probably the most blatant of all false teachers of the past century. <laughs> wow. I, have, I have not the slightest doubt in this discernment and declaration. Stay away from his teachings and ask God for forgiveness if you uh, have read his teachings and misled anyone. I'm going down here to the next image. Um, yeah, okay. Um, ask God for forgiveness if you have read his teachings or misled anyone. God will restore you. And then it says this. It says, Heresy, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Narnian, the life and imagination of C.S. Lewis, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Mixed bags, C.S. Lewis's signature classics, Jack, a life of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and the screw tape letters. And they link to an article... It's so fast. It's so funny. Um, they link to an article. It's www.fitforfaith.ca backslash discernment. Discernment, yeah. <laughs> uh, so now uh, we're going to get into some of the the arguments that they're going to give for why they're going to say the things that they do. Yeah, let's and so, discern this discernment ministry here. Yeah, so the first one is strongly, C.S. Lewis <clears throat> was strongly influenced by George MacDonald, a universalist. And it says, uh, Adam was married to a demon named Lilith before he married Eve. The devil will eventually be redeemed. Lilith shows up in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe as the mother of the white witch. Um, so that's claim number one. C.S. Lewis is a heretic because he was influenced by George MacDonald, who supposedly was a universalist. And, um, yeah, because Lilith shows up in one of his stories... He's obviously following <laughs> following something. some something. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, the next one is that C.S. Lewis Christianized, in quotations, white witchcraft, 
wrote heretical book series, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So it's a, I, he wrote a fictional heresy. So that's kind of funny. Um, long after his conversion in 1931, eight years after mere Christianity, the third uh, claim is that Lewis dedicated his autobiography to Bede Griffiths, who founded a Christian ashram in India. And then they quote C.S. Lewis saying, Hindu temples are a sacrament. No one can say in the proper sense that the Hindu, the Buddhist, or the Muslim is an unbeliever. I would say rather that we have to recognize him as our brother in Christ. The fourth claim is that pagan religions have truths. Christianity fulfilled paganism. Claim five is he presented two Roman gods as visible angelic deities of planet Venus in his book Paralandra. Claim six is he denied the literal Adam and Eve, most probably an evolutionist, although he denied, but it says, although denied by many. Uh, claim number seven is the Tao, T-A-O, so yep. we're talking about uh, like Tao, Taoism. Yeah, Taoism, yeah. Uh, Taoism contain, uh, it says Tao, uh, Tao contains the highest morality of all religions. Claim number eight, he rejected biblical inerrancy. Number nine, he said, purgatory is a real place. And number 10, and this is my favorite, Richie, he was very close friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. As if all the other points is not enough to burn him at the stake. That last one, just get the candle, kindling and the fires ready. That one was the icing on top of the cake. So, all right, so so let's work through this, these claims point by point, and, and let's just kind of dissect them and... Just kind of muse on them a little bit, have a few laughs. And... I was going to say, it's going to be really hard not to just straight up make fun of this, because I'm telling you. Well, um, I'm, let me be honest with you. As we dive into it, it's going to be, this is not, this is not a good critique of C.S. Lewis. Right. It is very bad. But the reason why I chose to do this was because these are arguments that you see recycled a lot. And it's, and it's because people don't understand C.S. Lewis. And I'll just be honest with you, a lot of, these are just, they're just simplistic arguments, yep. to say it nicely. Yep. Um, they're, they're not good arguments. C.S. Lewis is an, as a, was very intellectual, and the person who is reading these things does not understand C.S. Lewis and does not have the intellectual capacity right. to almost, track, track along with what he's saying. When I read it, it, it reminds me of somebody like holding on to a bunch of like hot takes that they've read somewhere and just yeah. kind of regurgitating it. Yeah, and I don't say that to, to be mean. I really don't. Like, I'm not trying to be rude or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, being honest and being straightforward, that the person who wrote this does not have the intellectual capacity to actual actually interact with C.S. Lewis and his thoughts. So, All right, but let's, let's get into it here a little bit. And so claim number one was that C.S. Lewis was strongly influenced by George MacDonald, who was a universalist. And then it kind of went on a tirade about Lilith, and yep. so anyway, um, so here's what I want to say. Um, while it's certainly true that C.S. Lewis was influenced by George MacDonald, um, it's actually not true that George MacDonald was a universalist. Yeah, I was going to say, explain the meaning between of universalist, universalism and what he sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, with it there. so universalism um, believes that all men, regardless of what they believed will be saved. Right. Like, basically, you could say it this way. There are many roads yeah. to, to salvation. Okay? So that's basically universalism. Uh, George MacDonald did not believe that. He believed in something called universal 
reconciliation, which is that all men one day will repent and believe in Christ. So there's some there's both universal in a sense, but the difference is that one is very inclusive. Yeah. The other is very exclusive, right? So universalism is very inclusive. All religions are a road to the same place. Universal redemption is exclusive because it says that all men will repent and believe in Christ. So it's not there's not many ways to salvation, but there's only one way, and yeah. it's through Christ. And that's what George MacDonald believed was universal reconciliation. Now, this is really similar to what some others in church history believed, like St. Gregory of Nyssa. Um, you know, he believed that all men would eventually repent and be saved. Now, let me say this. I don't believe that personally, okay? I'm, I'm a Calvinist, um, and so I, I, I'm not arguing in favor of this. Uh, I believe that there are some who will be saved, and that there will be some at the end of history who are not saved. I don't believe that all will repent and trust in God. And I don't believe that they will have the opportunity to at, at the last day. But you can see what George MacDonald is, is playing with. Right? He's playing with the idea that every, every tongue shall confess yeah. that Jesus is Lord, right? Um, so Reminds me sort of like an alternate version of almost post-millennialism. Yeah, in some way. So like, for example, as a post-millennialist, I believe that at the end of history, much more uh, people will be saved than those who aren't. Yeah. Because as a post-millennialist, I, I believe that the nations are going to be discipled and that it's going to be the outliers who, who are the ones who are going to go to hell. Uh, it's so, you know, the nations which are discipled is a lot more numerically than those who are the outliers. You know, the, the, the kind of vision that you see in places like Ezekiel and stuff like that is there's this river of life that's, fro that's flowing from the temple of God and it's uh, regenerating and renewing the lands that it touches. And the only places that it doesn't touch are like the swampy areas on the outskirts, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the vision that the Bible gives. And so there, it's, it's related, like, but it's not identical. But you can see what, what he's doing here. And so, so yeah, George MacDonald wasn't actually a universalist. And here's another argument. Um this is just the old guilt by association fallacy. No oh, gosh. Right? Like, just because George MacDonald may or have may not believed something, did not believe that, it does not mean that C.S. Lewis did. Right. I mean, think about it, right? Like, just because one of your friends may hold to weird novel ideas doesn't mean that you do. I have friends who are pagans, witches, everything you could think of, but I mean... Yeah. Right, yeah, and so that doesn't mean that you yourself believe those ideas, right. right? And it's like Jesus, the Bible says, is a friend of sinners, right? So so is Jesus guilty by association? That's what the religious leaders of his day tried to do. Yep. But Jesus wasn't, that's not how things work. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but Jesus was not a sinner, right? So um, so that's just not a very good argument. <laughs> it's, it's just not a... It's not very well thought out. It's not very well researched. It's not actually informed of what George MacDonald believed. Um, I also wanted to bring up the point here about Lilith because I think that there's just a, a misunderstanding with the person who's writing this about what Lewis is doing with Lilith. I, I would say that what Lewis is doing with Lilith is actually 
very biblical. Yep. Um, Lilith actually makes an appearance in the Bible in Isaiah when she's mentioned as a... She's given several different names depending on the translation you look at. She's she's talked about as being a night demon, a night monster, the night bird, the night owl, that kind of language. And she's not depicted as some type of, of good... Uh, being, she's right, depicted yeah. as a type of evil being who's associated with um, death in the nighttime. Yeah. Uh, like a, you know, a lot of the ancient Israelites associated uh, the Lilith or the Lilu or the Lilit. Um, it's more than it's. It's actually more than just they had a belief in this particular being, but it was a type of being, right? It's a, c- a right, category yeah. of being, right? Uh, we, you and I had had a conversation about that this morning before we came on on air today, but they believe that the Lilit or the Lilu, uh, I got that from Dr. Michael Heiser, um, they believe that that was a, a, a type of night demon, night monster that was associated with death at night. And so yep. whenever like a child would die at night of like, um, you know, uh, some type of like asphyxiation or something like that, they were associated with the Lily. Uh, yep. So anyway, I, I just think that... And interesting, though, the dynamic to put that sort of character in the story. Lilith is also associated with uh, child death. That's exactly so right, yeah. for her to be uh, linked to this character that's out to literally kill the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in the story, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, and so Lewis is depicting... Uh, Lilith. So Lilith is the mother of the White Witch in yeah. his sub-created world, and that's it's the way that he's using. It, it's actually very biblical, like yeah. like you're saying. He's she is uh, the mother of darkness, right. who and uh, she creates offspring that is going to deceive the sons of of Adam and Eve, yeah. and that's. I don't see the problem with that. Yeah. I just I just think that again. I think that it's it's just not having the ability to track along with what Lewis is actually doing. And it's, uh, and again, I don't mean that to be mean or, or insulting or anything like that. It's just, but that's what's going on here, honestly. Yeah. So uh, the second claim that we're going to take a look at is that Lewis, this is, this is going to be a fun one. Oh, God. Uh, that Lewis Christianized white witchcraft and wrote a heretical book series called the Chronicles of Narnia. So, let me just first off say, I I don't know how you sub-create a fictional world and it become heretical. Right. You know, I, I posted this in the Sword and Staff group earlier this week. Uh, I said something along those lines, and we had one of our longtime listeners and patrons. Uh, he said that, you know, he gave an example of uh, that, that fiction could be heretical, and he gave the example of, of the shack. Yeah. And I take that point. But I, I, at the same time, I don't think that that's really... I think that the shack is heretical, not because it's a sub-created world, but because it's taking place in a world that actually exists. Yep. And it's using already established um, theology and, and a worldview that's already um, that exists, and it's not actually sub-created. I find it hard for there to be a sub-created world that's heretical. Right. Um and even the the writer of the shack does not believe that he create sub created a world. He he calls the shack uh, true fiction. Yep. So he doesn't even truly view it as 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 fiction. 
So I take that point, but at the same time, I, I don't know if you can sub-create a fictional world and it actually be heretical, which is kind of why I scoffed at the idea that, that the Chronicles of Narnia are heretical. Like, it is a fictional world. Yeah. It's not real. <laughs> like, uh, So that's kind of funny, but this claim is really interesting, and, and here's why. Here's where things get a little bit, we- a little bit weird. Okay, You know, the first point, you know, there was a claim there, and there was a little bit of, you know, argumentation there, right? He's, he's strongly influenced by George MacDonald. George MacDonald was a universalist, okay? Um, here, it, it actually sounded to me like this sounded like, it sounded like this was a regurgitated talking point to me because there wasn't actually any evidence to, like, prove this. It was just, like, C.S. Lewis Christianized white witchcraft. Like, there was just, it's a claim. There's no evidence. So, you know, I started digging around online um, to just dig a little bit deeper into this, and I actually started copying and pasting and Googling sections of this Instagram post, and here's what I found out. I actually found out that the person who operates this ministry page plagiarized this article from a site called The Great Controversy. Yep. So they literally copy and pasted it word for word with no attribution to the original author, which is a obviously a big no-no. Um, but they 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 pulled it from a site called The Great Controversy. And then I started looking at the original article that they were using as a source and they didn't cite. And it, it kind of helped me understand the argument a little bit better, what, what they're actually arguing for. So basically the arg the uh the uh, author of that article, you guys can go find it. It's you just go to Google, type in the Great Controversy, type in C.S. Lewis, the Christian pagan. It'll pull up what I'm talking about. But the author of that article goes through C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy. He pulls a lot of quotes from Lewis, um, talking about his past before he was a Christian, where he discussed his interest in things like paganism and the occult. Yep. So they, so what the author does is he takes that. And then he takes his statements about how Christianity is like the true myth. And then he takes the contents of Narnia, like there being a white witch, Aslan using the deep magic, and the kids using magic, like in The Magician's Nephew, and etc. And then they use that as evidence to make a case that Lewis Christianized white witchcraft. I can't. And that Narnia is heretical because of it. So, yeah, so let's just interact with that a little bit. Okay. Uh, it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of funny in some way. But anyway, so here's what I'm going to say, number one. Like, I don't think that it's fair for you to go through an autobiography by somebody and pull quotations that are explicitly about uh, their life before they were a Christian and use it as evidence against them saying, well, the, the person just simply Christianized um, what they believed before. Yeah. I don't think that that's, uh, that's really fair. Um, so I think that that's one thing, but I, here's what I think is really going on with this. I, I think that there is a real misunderstanding here about what C.S. Lewis, and by extension, somebody like a J.R.R. Tolkien, would mean by magic. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's <clears throat> not the same as witchcraft. Right, and we've, sp- we've done, actually mentioned this very thing in a, Actually, a few of our episodes were went in depth on magic and the different kinds of magic and what different people mean by magic. Well, magic is basically bending nature to your will. Right. Right. It's not dominion. It's domination. Right. 
And in Lewis, and then again, by extension, Tolkien, um, magic is being in tune with the natural law. Right. Like the law of nature. Um, and that's what Aslan means by the deep magic. There's a, uh, there's a great video out there by uh, the C.S. Lewis Foundation that they did with Malcolm Geit and uh, Andrew Peterson where they actually have a conversation about this, um, what Lewis meant on the deep magic. So I would, I would commend that to you. Uh, it's out there. But they did not mean the same thing. By, and you actually see it in the stories. Like Aslan was there when the deep magic was, yeah. was written. He tells, what is it? He tells the White Witch. Hey, uh, the White Witch, when she's uh, coming to him to quote the law and to try to get Aslan to hand over Edmund to be sacrificed on the stone she's table. She's trying to bend things. Yeah. She uh, starts quoting uh, the deep magic, the, the old law of Narnia to Aslan, and Aslan tells her, just don't cite the deep magic to me. He was, he was, I was there when it was written. Right. So he's, he's talking in reference to the natural law, the, right. law, the law of nature. And so you see this depicted. So the one, in, the one who is in line with that, who is taking dominion in the subcreated worlds of Tolkien and Lewis? That appears to people to be as magic. Yeah. Um, so, for example, mm-hmm. you know, there's a uh, there's an example of this in in Tolkien with Galadriel. Okay. So they've experienced the the magic of Saruman. Right. He bends things to his will. He's destroy. He has a mind of metal. Right. He's destroying things. He's taking. Yep. He's dominating things. Um, but whenever they come across Galadriel, they're very confused by her because she appears to be magical to them. And they can't understand the difference between what she's doing. And she, she explicitly tells them that like what, what I do appears to be magic to you, but it's, right. it's not actually magic. And, but what it is is she's in line with nature, with with. The way that Eru Luvatar yeah. created the world. She's not trying to bend it or subject it to her will. She walks with the will of Eluvatar. Right. Yeah. And and that's what magic is in these sub-created worlds. And you know, it 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 makes whenever one walks in alignment with that, in that way, then this is how they, they come across. But you know, there's there's just another thing here too. Like they talk about, you know, the children and their use of magic and you know, that's just a depiction of union with Christ. Yep, it is. You know, they're <clears throat> united with Aslan, and so they're the the deep magic. Not only it, it it goes through Aslan, but also through them as well. And I mean, even in the Bible, you you see that in a similar way, right? Like those who share in union with Christ. Um, they're able to do the miraculous in some right. sense. I mean, even all the inhabitants of uh, Narnia, when Edmund and Lucy and all of them first come on the scene, they've all heard of these these prophecies talking about sons of Adam and daughters of Eve uh, being prophesied from the beginning to come and rule Narnia. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of the Apostle Peter in Acts where, you know, he's united to Christ. And because of that... Um, He's he's able to the, the the apostles are able to work miracles because of that, um, but there are people literally falling in the shadow of yeah. of Peter and they're being healed. I mean, I can't help but imagine that to some that looks like magic. Yeah, <laughs> and 
I, I just think that it's just a big misunderstanding here of what, what magic is in these worlds. Like, I, I'm, it's not the same magic of Harry Potter. No. It's, it's, Absolutely not. No, it's a, different, it's a different kind of magic. It's like thinking about, um, you know, there, everybody always makes the comparison between Gandalf. Um, and Dumbledore. And Dumbledore. Yeah. But one is bending nature. The other, on the other hand, is an angelic being. Right who is a spiritual being, a supernatural being, and is walking with Aeroluvatar. Yeah, Dumbledore is literally a sorcerer. He is yeah. a conjurer, and uh, Gandalf is a Maiar spirit. Like, he's an angel. I mean... They're not the same. Not the same. Yeah, and so it's a conflation here, I think, in some ways. Like, where you're... And it's just because there's not this type of nuanced thinking yep. that... Um, you know, that somebody like a Lewis or a Tolkien has. And if you don't spend any time in their writings and what they, they were talking about, you're just, you're just not going to understand these distinctions and you're going to say ridiculous things. But yeah, even the, the children's, uh, their royalty in Narnia, their crown that they're given as high Kings and Queens of, of Narnia, their whole story in Narnia, Aslan tells them in uh Dawn Treader that, well, he tells Lucy that the very reason that they were brought to Narnia was to better understand who Aslan is in right. their world. Yeah. And that in their world, he's known by another name. That's right. So it goes to show like their, who they are in Christ, but that's the reason they were brought to Narnia. Yeah. I, to get a better idea of that. I, I have so much to just say about that. I mean, but here's what I, what I want everybody to know is that magic and Lewis and, and say in Tolkien or any of those is not the same as witchcraft. Right. Like actually witchcraft is what the white witch does. Yeah. She's bending nature to her will. And she's depicted as evil. Not as good. Right. She's she's a descendant of Lilith. So it's just it's just I don't know, it's just not a good argument. So I don't know if you got anything you want to add to that one. Um, I mean just the way that the magic is used in the story, I mean, the white witch is stealing literally stealing the magic that she's using. She's taking things that were created by Aslan. I mean you see a magician's nephew when Aslan's sort of singing Narnia into existence, mm-hmm. the White Witch is taking those created elements and using them for her own dark and twisted purposes. But when the children use magic or Aslan uses magic, it's by a gift of dominion. Like they're being allowed mm-hmm. to use that. They're in they're in harmony with the created order. Yeah, that's right. It's it's the distinction here is between dominion and domination. Right. This the the deep magic, the true the true thing. Um, is dominion, bending it to your will, nature to your will, and what the White Witch does and what Saruman does and Lord of the Rings, that's domination, and there's a distinction between the both of them, the two of them. So um, I, I, I think that we could probably talk on that point forever, oh, yeah. and especially, and you could probably get into your history and the occult and how that's exactly what witchcraft yeah, that's, is. It's hard for me not to just break into that right now because... Would you say that whenever you were in the occult, that's what the occult is? Is that it is bending nature to? Oh, your will. absolutely. I mean, that's the point of using uh, elements of nature in your rituals to begin with. When you use crystals or earth or herbs or anything, you're taking the created order and asserting dominance over it and mm. using it in your as a catalyst in your own focused intention in your spell work. Yeah. So you're focusing your intention into this, and you're bending this thing with your intention. Right. Yeah. I think that we could probably talk on that point forever. Maybe we'll oh, yeah. come. Maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But we need to. I think that 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 hearing that will intrigue people. So, okay. But we got to move on because we're already you know thirty minutes in, and 
you know, we've still yet got <laughs> three or four arguments to work through. Yeah. Um, so the third claim is that, oh, this was a bad one. <laughs> this is really bad. Um, okay. So the third claim is that C.S. Lewis dedicated his autobiography, uh, Surprised by Joy, to Bede Griffiths. Oh, here we go. Who founded a Christian ashram in India. And then they claim that C.S. Lewis said, get this, Hindu, Hindu te- uh, temples are a sacrament. No one can say in the proper sense that the Hindu, the Buddhist, or the Muslim is an unbeliever. They are our brother in Christ. Now, whenever I dropped this article or this Instagram post in the Sword and Staff group, there were people concerned about that. They're like, yep. ooh, what about this one? Like, this one's really bad. And <laughs> I, I, again, I did some research uh, for this episode. And actually, C.S. Lewis never said that. He, he never said that um, Hindu temples are a sacrament or that the Muslim or the Hindu or the Buddhist is our brother in Christ. Actually, what's going on here is this person is doing one of two things. One, they're misquoting C.S. Lewis, or they're doing a poor job of actually citing this, and they're doing it intentionally. Um, So, actually, Bede Griffiths is the one who said this, not C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So, Bede Griffiths is unorthodox. Again, guilt by association. Yeah, right. So, we'll get to that here in a second. But... B. Griffiths was the one who actually said this. Lewis never said this. There is never a place um, where you will see Lewis saying anything like this, but it's actually found in a group in a book by a man named Randy England. He wrote a book called The Unicorn in the Sanctuary, The Impact of the New Age on the Catholic Church. So Randy England quotes B. Griffiths in this book. It's published by 10 books. Uh, It was published in 1991, and it appears on pages 72 through 72. So it's it's not even a direct quote from Beads Griffiths. It's it's someone who has been in a conversation with with Beads Griffiths. But it's just so funny because, again, we're getting back here to to guilt by association, right? Like, here's the thing that people need to realize— that people like see like people may see that he was friends with somebody like this and be like, okay, well he shouldn't have been friends with somebody like this. Jesus was a friend of sinners, guys. Yeah, <laughs> right. Jesus ate with people that the religious people of the day wanted nothing to do with, and C.S. Lewis was, and really the rest of the Inklings even were they were Oxford dons who had friendships with all sorts of people with differing beliefs than themselves. I mean, not even all of the Inklings were Christians. Like, Owen Barfield was an occultist. Like, he wasn't even a Christian. And But that doesn't mean that these people were those things themselves just because they associated with them or were friends with them. I have friends, I'm, I'm a pastor, I have friends who are unbelievers. I have right. friends who are, who, do, who are involved in things that I would never be involved in, but that doesn't mean that I myself approve of or would do such a thing, right? It's just, it's just, just, just this thing is just rife with logical fallacies. So, right. but this is just such a poorly, poorly done hit piece. Like, I mean, like saying that C.S. Lewis said that Hindu temples are a sacrament and it actually not being C.S. Lewis, but the other person. To, I mean, that's just, that's just poor research. 
at best and could be a lot at worst. So, yep. All right. Now, this is where I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Okay. And this is claim number four. And that is that pagan religions have truth. Oh, no. And that Christianity fulfilled paganism. To which Richie and I both say, well, yeah. Yeah. But so what? <laughs> yeah. So. So, so what? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, here's the, here's the deal. Okay. Um, paganism is man taking, looking at nature, uh, things like that, and crafting a story, a yep. narrative about the way that things are, right? And here's the reality because natural revelation is available to people, to all people, that means they're able to get some things right. Right. I mean, look at Romans 1. Romans 1, that's right. Um, the Psalms talk about the heavens declare the glory of God. Yep. Like, people are able to look at the heavens. They're able to look at the creation, and they're, be, they're able to say, somebody created this. Look at, look at the power. Yeah, I mean, you know? Romans 1 charges them that their belief is without excuse. I mean, That's the reason uh, why people don't. are without excuse, yep. is because natural revelation speaks so loudly and so clearly that you can't, you can't just cover your ears and say that you didn't hear it. Right. That's the reason why people are without excuse, because natural revelation is, is there. And so that means that the pagans, they're able to look at things. Like, for example, the, the, the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, the Romans, all of those people. I mean, the, creation speaks the story. It speaks the, it's, it's the mind of the creator. I mean, that's, that's why you have other belief systems to begin with. I mean, if right. there was no meaning anywhere, there wouldn't be any of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, for example, like I was saying, you know, the Babylonians and, or the, even the Canaanites and um, you know, the Romans, the Greeks, all of this, they, they were able to look at creation and say, there was a, there was a God who, yeah. who created this. They're seeing this picture in part, and they're pondering who this creator is. But, you know, and, so they're right on that point. But what they get wrong is that they think that it's a pantheon of gods. Right. And these are fallen divine council members. These are angelic beings who are fallen, who are in rebellion to Yahweh, who have revealed themselves to these peoples. Yeah. You know, we've <clears> talked <throat> about this before yeah. in, in re-enchanting the heavens and, and all of that kind of stuff, so we don't need to refresh all of that. But, but they're able to look at things. And not only that, but these beings who reveal themselves to them, uh, they give them half-truths. Yeah. You know, um, but what Christianity does is it takes this same story and it tweaks it and it puts it to right. So, for example, you know, the Canaanites, they had a god named Shamosh, uh, or Chamosh, and uh, they believe that Chamosh uh, you know, created, created the world. And it's, it's amazing. Um, and then in the, the biblical, biblical creation story, they're aware of this story of the yep. Canaanites. And so they say, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what does he do? He, he doesn't, it doesn't say the sun or the moon, but what is it that he fixes in the firmaments? The greater light and the what? The lesser light. The lesser light. And the interesting thing is whenever it says the greater light, in Hebrew it says Shemosh. Yep. So the God that you worship, that you think created everything, actually our God created it. And he, he, he flung it into the sky. Right. <laughs> you know, so the Bible is aware of these stories. And it's, 
it's putting them to rights. So, uh, you know, an, another one, uh, you know, is the, uh, you know, the whole uh, Nephilim sons of God thing, right? In, in the um, in Babylonian mythology, we've talked about this, you had the, uh, the Anunnaki and, and those types of things. Um, and let's see, you had the Anunnaki. And what was it? We did an episode on, uh, let me see here. We done an, it was a Chinwag edition. I'd have to go back and look at it. It was Anunnaki, and I don't think that the one we did was on the Anunnaki though. But um, basically, in Hebrew, anyway, yeah, it doesn't really matter at this point. But in Babylonian mythology, they they had like a they had a theology of, of giants, and they believed that they were these great mighty men of renown. Yep. They were these culture makers who founded the cities, right? You've got somebody like a Nimrod who create, who, who founds like Assyria and, you know, all of those types of Babylon and all those types of things. So they, they think that they're good guys, that they're men of renown, the mighty men of renown. These are our, our culture builders. Yeah. And, and the, you see that in like almost every ancient culture, these culture builders that come to man and give them these, this higher knowledge, these gifts. I mean, you see it in their, their depictions of these beings. Like I know in uh, Babylonian, Sumerian, depictions of uh, the culture bringers, they're all carrying this little bag that symbolizes the gift of this knowledge that they're bringing to these ancient peoples. And you go to um, the Aztec culture or anything like that, and you'll see those same beings depicted with that same kind of bag imagery, that symbol of that gift, this knowledge that they're bringing to man. Yeah. And so, you know, so they think that these mighty men of renown are these great people who brought the Apkalu. Yeah, yep. that was the other word. I keep getting, I get Anunnaki and Anunnaki, Apkalu. Apkalu. Yeah, uh, that's related to spirits, Anunnaki is. Um, but the Apkalu, were the, that was the Babylonian name for these giants, these mighty men of renown, right? And they thought that they were culture heroes. And, and the Bible's like, they were the Nephilim. They were the product yep. of the sons of God and the daughters of men. They, they're called the mighty men of renown. But... Just so you know, they're the they're they're bastard spirits, yeah. <laughs> you know. Who and so the Bible is interacting with these stories, um, but here, get this, get this. So it's like men has man has this desire to be ruled by um, these types of beings who are the product of spirits and man, right? Yeah. Like this, all of the, the, the all of those Babylon, like Babylon, and all of those cultures, like they all had these types of stories, like you were talking about. So it's like for for some reason, in, innately in man, there is this desire to have uh, like things like demigods and this. And, and the Bible doesn't necessarily say that's a bad desire. What it does is it points out that the way that they're doing it is wrong. But then it sets it to right. How is it that Christ is born? Right, he's born yep. of a. It inverts it. Yep. Right, so he's born of a woman, not a. So in a lot of these ancient myths, you know, a lot of these gods are born of, you know, temple prostitutes, you know, those types of things, because uh, they would go through, you know, a lot of the sexual things that happened were uh, religious, sexual, sex magic, yep. you know, that kind a of thing. A lot of that going on. Yeah, um, but Christ, on the other hand. He's born of a virgin, yep. right? And it's not a bastard spirit, an unclean spirit that impregnates the woman, but it's God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, 
who who conceives uh, makes Mary to conceive in her womb, and he's not you know uh, like uh, you know Gilgamesh where he's like seventy five percent. Dem, uh, you know, God and the other percent man. No, right. he is a hundred percent God, a hundred percent man. He's a hypostatic union of the two. Um, so it's fascinating. So it's like the Bible looks at things and it says no. It, it extends the the law to it, but then it also extends the gospel to certain things. It says, but your desire here, it's fulfilled in Christ. Yep. Um, you know, I was listening to a podcast, and you see that all that that whole thing. I mean, there's other examples of this. You know, for example, uh, John one, the Lagos. Yeah. The Lagos is a Greek pagan concept. the The Greeks believed that there was this um, guiding force that guided and ordered everything in the universe. The Lagos, the the word. Yeah, like them leaving us. A space in the pantheon open to the unknown God. Right. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, but they they believed that there was this guiding principle who brought order to all things. It was the Logos, but it was unknowable. Okay? Like you couldn't know the Logos. You could experience it. You could see the... Uh, you couldn't see the essence of it. You, you could see how it's worked out in pattern and in order and that kind of thing. You, you could experience it. Yeah, that's right. You could see how it, it works out, that kind of thing. Um, and the Christians said yes, but they also said no. Yep. They said, you're right. There is a logos. There is but an order. But he is knowable. But he is knowable. And that's why John opens John 1.1 the way that he does. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Dot, 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 dot. And then he took on flesh and dwelt among us. He sets it to right. He sets it to right. You have this desire within you uh, to follow this Logos who brings order to the creation. That's a a right desire, but you're looking for it in the wrong place. You're looking for it in a place that that is unknowable um, and that you can't actually participate in it. And John says, but in Jesus Christ, you can have that. So, you know, another one is, is at the Areopagus. You were just now mentioning yeah. it. Uh, you know, it's, this is a fascinating case, case study. Um, it's so funny because it's like the presuppositional apologetics proof text from a lot of people, and it's actually yeah. it's the opposite. Um, but, you know, Paul is at the Areopagus in Acts, and he's, he's, um, I'll say it. he's uh, interacting with the, the Greeks, and, you know, he sees all this religious life going on there in Mars Hill. And, you know, he sees that they've got these temples and they've got this temple to the unknown God. And they're, they're venerating this God that they don't even know. And he, he looks to them and he says, you know, you're right that there is a God who, in whom we live, move, and have our being. But he's not unknowable. He's knowable in, in, in the God of Israel. And so it's so funny. He actually, to make the point, he actually quotes one of their own poets. And you know, we were we were talking about this and listening, you know, to researching this earlier. And it's you know, in the ancient world, uh, the poets, the things that they wrote were basically considered religious yeah. texts. You know, that and was their philosophers. Yeah, and so he 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 uh, quotes Cleanthes and his hymn to Zeus. It's a hymn about Zeus. Yeah. Yeah. And he quote Paul quotes it to them. 
And he says, you're right, there, there is this God in whom we live, move, and have our being. But it's not Zeus. It's not this deity that you're worshiping that's unknowable. It's, it's the triune God. It's fascinating. Yep. So again, Paul is extending <clears throat> the yes and the no. And you see this throughout church history. They did this in church history. This is where the this is where the formula of baptize, of bapti- uh, bless, bless, baptize, and burn, and burn yeah. comes from. Right? There are certain things that we can say yes to. There are certain things that we can say yes to if they're, they, but they need to be tweaked. They need to be baptized. And then there's just certain things that are unredeemable that we have to say no to. I mean, it's the same reason that you, that the early church had like depictions of Pan, the Green Man. Like fey right. beings in their cathedrals. Yeah. Well, actually, this is exactly what I was going to talk about. So there's this, uh, in uh, Rome, there's this cathedral there. St. Clement is a medieval uh, cathedral. And it's built on top of an earlier 4th century uh, parish called St. Clement as well. So, I mean, we're talking old. And it's underneath it. It's underneath the chapel, uh, the, the cathedral, and a lot of it's still intact. But get this, they built it on top of this River, so it used to be a pagan temple, and they built they built it on top of the pagan temple, and they used to uh, the pagans who used to worship there, they used to um, almost venerate this river. So there's actually a river that flows out from underneath this cathedral. They used to think that it was a sacred uh, body of water. It was a sacred uh, river that flowed through there, and so they used to do things with it. And the Christian said, well, you're, you're wrong, but you're also right. So get what they did. So it's like, it's not because of the gods that you worship that this, is, this water is sacred. Um, <laughs> but it's because whenever it's united to the word, Jesus Christ, that it becomes sacred. It becomes this death, but it also becomes this life-giving thing. Right, the washing of regeneration is the type of language that we hear in the Bible. Right, it's the washing, the waters, the washing of the regeneration, and so they use that, and they actually would uh, use that water to bring up and use in their baptismal, that which used to be yep. a river that was you know venerated by pagans. So again, it's like you see this yes, and then no. I, I heard this story of, a, of an Eastern Orthodox monk priest. Um, <laughs> this is a funny story. And, uh, you know, how Eastern Orthodox, they've got the big beards. Yep. You know, I've got some friends who are Eastern Orthodox. They all have great beards. Got some epic beards. Yeah. And uh, he was out west somewhere. He was like walking down a boardwalk somewhere. And uh, he was talking about that uh, as he was walking, you know, he's got his big black habit on and, uh, you know, his priestly, you know, robes. And uh, there's a young boy who stops and looks at him. He's inspecting him. He goes, huh, a wizard. Yes. <laughs> it just turns and it goes on on his way. Yep. And and the Eastern Orthodox uh, monk says, "You know what? He's right. Like I am what the what wizard pointed to. Yep. Like the, the magician the, archetype. The, the magician archetype. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating. But so it. But so to just to say that to to look at C.S. Lewis to bring this back around to look at C.S. Lewis and to say that him saying that Christianity fulfilled paganism and that pagan religions have truth, to say that's heretical is just so ignorant. Yeah, It's just so <laughs> ignorant of the Bible and what they're doing in the Bible, what the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are doing, and just 
the church in general throughout history. I mean, the biblical authors understood that the pagans had these these longings from natural revelation to meet and know the creator. Yeah. Like they had the myths and tales and legends that all pointed to, to this, even to this coming of this figure mm-hmm. to one day they would know the creator. In the same way that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Jewish law, right? he also fulfills the Gentile myths. Right. Right. The Gentiles had these, I mean, think of like the, the Iliad, the, you know, the Odyssey or the, you know, the Aeneid. Or... I mean, and it's such an observable point that you have critics of the Bible today saying that the Bible is a ripoff of these pagan stories. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. Um, but so like thinking of the, the Iliad or the, the Odyssey or the, the Aeneid or whatever, and you've got this hero who goes down into the, under the world, into the underworld and then he comes back to tell the tale. Jesus Christ fulfills that. You know, he he goes into like the heart of the earth. Warrior king yeah. figure. Yep. He's, he he goes into the underworld and comes back. You know, and then you know Lewis talks about you know the corn king myth. Yep. This, this king who dies and then he resurrects, and and Jesus fulfills that. And guess what? He has to in order to reach the Gentiles, right? He has to fulfill the Jewish law to reach the law uh, to reach those who are under the law, and those who are without the law. He also has to fulfill these stories that they have this longing for in their hearts so that he can unite both Jew and Gentile into himself creating one new man. Right. It's Ephesians, you see that, Ephesians that, that mentality in Paul when he's explaining to those people to see Christ in their, their myths and their religions. Yeah. It's, that's what Christianity has historically done. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, there are things that we have to say no to. Right. Um, but there's also things we can say yes to. And I want to say, this is maybe just a point of maybe application, I don't know. Um, I think this is the importance of classical Christian education. Um, it's something that I've been diving in deeper to since I've had uh, a child because we're planning on going that route. And like to, to us and to some of our listeners, that sound, this sounds wild, you know? But to people who are in that stream, like this is common knowledge. And it's because they read a lot of things like the Odyssey and the Iliad and you know Gilgamesh and, and all those classics. And then they look and see how Christ is the one who fulfills them all. But this is why this whole stream is called the Great Tradition and the Great the Great Conversation, because the Bible is interacting with and having a conversation with all of these right. other cultures. Yep. That's why it's called the Great Conversation. So the Bible is looking at these things, saying, "You guys are right on this. You guys are right on this." It's like the Underworld series we did with right. the Greeks. Like, you guys are right on some of this stuff. But you're also wrong on some of it. And this is how Christianity comes alongside of it and corrects it because we have direct revelation from God. Right. So, okay. Like the pagans are seeing things in part. They're seeing truth in what they're seeing in part. Mm-hmm. They're just seeing it through a distorted glass. You know, uh, Tolkien says that the myths... Um, how was it he said it? Uh, i got to find the quote here because it's going to... Josh's got a good quote. Yeah, well, he says, our, I think it's something along the lines of our myths may be misguided. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what one you're talking about. He said, uh, our, our myths may be misguided, but they steer however shakily towards the true harbor, while materialistic progress leads only to a yawning abyss in the iron crown of the power of evil. So, you know, he talks about the myths are misguided, but there are tr- there they, right. there is truth in them. They do steer, however shakily, towards the true harbor. Yeah. Uh, ob- like... Christ like is the underlying one who, essence of truth. Yeah, Christ is the one who fulfills these things. So it's just it's just funny to me. Like I think that this just 
it's just uh, it's just a you just I don't I just think that you can't I'm flabbergasted if you can't tell I'm, I'm um, me too the you, whole article is just you you can't understand John one uh, I mean it's hard to even understand like. Gideon and what's going on there, like where he tears down his father's altar to to Baal. Right, we've come so far in these categories that it's hard to even like take our allow ourselves to go back to that sort of thing. It's hard to it's hard to understand Saint Boniface, yeah, who cuts down Donner's oak, the the oak of Thor, but he doesn't burn the oak after he's done with it. He takes it and he says, "Hey, uh, worshiping tied to this wood is a is a this tree is a good thing," but. It's, you shouldn't be worshiping Thor, and he takes it and he builds a chapel out of it, and many are converted. So it just—I I don't think you can understand the Bible or church history if you take this kind of position. So anyway, right. we've—we're an hour in. We've still yet got uh, a couple more. Um, <laughs> this is what happens. Um, you know what? I, I think that we'll touch on a couple of these very briefly, and then we'll just wrap it up. Um, the next one is. He presents, claim five, he presents two Roman gods as angelic de- deities in Paralandra. <laughs> I mean, how do we not dive into divine counsel stuff right here? Well, I mean, you, if you don't have an understanding of that, then I can see how what he's talking, what, what this, what, it would look weird. Yeah. But if you understand that the Roman gods are fallen angels, divine, or fallen divine council members, they're angelic beings who ranked high in God's heavenly court. Then you can understand what he's doing, how he's putting them back in their proper place, right? Instead of them being um, gods, they're depicted as angelic. Well, I mean, even uh, the original believers of these pantheons understood these gods, especially the Olympians, as being created beings. I mean, they had mm. predecessors. That's right. They had- yeah. Well, it's even, you know, I was looking at. Uh, you know, I was uh, watching Moon Knight on the new Marvel show this past week, and um, you know, there's a an Egyptian Aeneid, and before they worshipped their whole pantheon, they believed in, in an uncreated one, and it just kind of ties into yep. what you're saying there, you know. So, but you know, Lewis is putting things back in their art, their order, like these gods of these other places are actually angelic beings who are on an angelic hierarchy. And we've talked about the angelic hierarchy before, right? Yep. You've got, you know, <clears throat> you've got three three choirs of angels. You've got, you know, the cherub or the chair or the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones. You've got the dominions and then you've got the uh, oh gosh, I, I have trouble remembering that one. Then you've got the virtues, which are the elemental spirits. Um, then you've got, you know, the the uh, oh man, the principalities, the archangels, and the angels. The powers. Like, yeah, powers is the one that I missed. Um, I always miss that one for whatever reason. And basically, what Lewis is doing is he's putting these back in their proper hierarchy. This could open up a whole conversation yep. on the seven heavens and Lewis's vision of the seven heavens, which was the Christian medieval view of the heavens. Planet Narnia uh, talk right here. Yeah, yeah, it's hard for me to not go into Planet Narnia right now, but yep. not, so, you know, we associate um, the gods, w- w- biblically, through a biblical worldview, we associate the gods of the nations with the principalities on this biblical angelic hierarchy. Um, in the medieval world, though, there were also um, angelic beings over the planets, and that's what Lewis is doing. He's playing off of that. 
and uh, there's just so much that I would like to yep. say. And we're talking, we're thinking about doing a series on this where we talk about um, you know things like the four corners of the earth and is the earth flat or is it symbolically flat? And you know uh, we don't want to get into all yep. that too much, you know. But you've got this, you have the firmaments, and then you've got the things fixed in the firmaments, and then after. You've above that you have the seven heavens, and so anyway, we'll we'll probably dive into that a little bit deeper in a whole series here before long. There's just so much that we could say about that, but um, the uh, the next one that I want to cover here is they they claim that he said that the Tao was the highest morality of all religion, which we talked about that a little bit already. I think, um, yeah, we read it. Earlier, yeah. um, so we talked about it. We're talking, so we're talking about Taoism, and you have to understand this. It gets back to what we were talking about: how you have to realize what Lewis's, what he's doing with language here, and what he means by words. By by Tao, he just means natural law. Yeah, like that's all he means. He and he, and if you've read his book, like if you look at Taoism, it's it's balance in nature. I mean, that's where you get yin and yang from. Mm. If you read his book, The Abolition of Man, um, he lays out that, well, he starts in, in Chronicles, or not Chronicles of Narnia, but in Mere Christianity about how there's this moral law, how if if I say if I take something from you, you know that that was wrong and that we shouldn't fight, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Or um, if I say, to, you know, he talks about, you know, give me your bit of orange and that kind of thing, that... We, we all have this concept that there's a certain way to do things, and it's wrong for me to take something from you, and it's wrong if we fight with one another. Like, there's just this... So why do we know that? It's because there is this natural law that stands above us, that is created by God. And so what Lewis does in The Abolition of Man is he lays out all of these moral codes in other cultures and... and um, he basically shows how they reflect the Ten Commandments or this natural law. And he just calls it the Tao, the way, is what it means. And so that's why he uses it. So he's trying to build a bridge between, yep. you know, to, to talk with people of other religions. So it's not that he is a Taoist. It's not that at all. But that's what he's doing. So if you don't understand what, what he's doing, you're just, you're just not going to understand. So, um, okay. So... The next one, and this is probably the last one that we'll we'll talk about, just because we're running low on time. Um, this is my favorite one. There's a couple more here, like he rejected biblical inerrancy. Purgatory yeah. is a real place. I, I don't care if he thought that purgatory was a real place. Right. Um, there are. I, I believe that people. There are people who are Christians who believe that. So yeah. I don't believe. Do I agree with them? No. But. Um, I don't think that they're heretics because they believe that. Um, you know, there's another one here where he did. They claim that he denied a literal Adam and Eve, and that one that one's probably the most troubling for me. Um, but anyway, I, I, you know, we we can get into some of that stuff uh, another time. But this is the last one I wanted to get oh, into. Oh gosh, yeah. was that he was very close friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> There's that's what gets you burned at the stake. That's right the there. icing on the cake right there. Yep. Being friends, uh, they'll burn you at the stake. Being friends with Tolkien, and again, it's mo it's guilt by association. Um, it's hard to take. It's it, in some ways, it's hard to take the legitimate 
criticism seriously whenever they get so many things wrong and there's just such ridiculous petty arguments on here like he's friends with Tolkien. Yeah. You know? So anyway, um, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll come back sometime here and visit some of these other ones like some of the, the other ones, uh, like the serious ones, like the, he denied a literal Adam and Eve and you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, for the meantime, uh, I mean, if he denied a, literal Adam and Eve, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of inclined, like, okay, like, I think he's wrong, but there are other people out there who are Christians who believe that. I mean, like, I'm just the, the big controversy here recently with like William Lane Craig, like, I don't think he's a non-Christian for that. Um, do I believe that? No. I think that it runs into a lot of problems. I think you eliminate the, the need why Christ comes in the first place, but Am I going to, you know, I, I would need to dive a little bit deeper into what Lewis believed uh, about Adam and Eve. I've not come across anything personally that I've that I recall seeing. So, so I, I just wonder how much of these are serious or you know not. So that's one of them. Um, and then the biblical inerrancy one. Um, I know for a fact that Lewis um, held to the inspiration of Scripture, that it was in, inspired by God. There is a video on um, on YouTube from um, Luis Marcos, who is a who has written about Lewis and the true myth and you know all that kind of stuff. He's at Houston Baptist. Um, very sharp guy, very very sharp guy. Um, but he he's uh, wrote on that and or he speaks on that and he talks about how uh, Lewis's view of, of of inspiration and uh, the the Tao and all that stuff. But um, I know that Desiring God did a conference about eight years ago on C.S. Lewis, and there was a talk by Phil Riken where he talked about inerrancy uh, in C.S. Lewis. I've not had a chance to read it, but it's out there. It's a resource if you guys want to dive deeper into it. Um, if, if he denied a literal Adam and Eve and if he denied inerrancy, I disagree with him. <laughs> um, but I know that he did believe that the scriptures were God-breathed. Um, how you get to that point and not think that they're without error if they're God breathed. I don't know how you get to there logically, but you know, so, but I also at the same time don't know enough about those points to be able to comment on them. I do about the other ones. So, but Richie, I don't know if you got anything else that you want to comment on. Um, do you think, our, do you think Lewis is a heretic? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I expect nothing less. Um, all right. Well, I think that's about all the time that we've got for today's episode. We hope that you guys enjoyed it. We hope that it, you learned something. Um, we hope that maybe we said some things to make you think, um, especially about Christianity being like the true myth and how it fulfills paganism and how that's not a bad thing. Um, and that's about all that. Uh, that's about all that I've got. So, if you're listening and if you want these episodes delivered to you faster. If you want bonus content that you're not going to get anywhere else, you need to head on over to our Patreon and become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can get the Sword and Staff Uncut and all types of uh, bonus content that nobody else is going to get. I released some story stuff here recently that I was writing. Um, we do monthly Patreon Q&A videos, which we were actually supposed to record today, but we didn't. Yep. we're not going to get around to that today since we had to move to my home and record here. So... Um, we'll hopefully get back to that next week, and uh, but we do monthly Q Q and A's, um, all kinds of things that you're not going to get anywhere else. So you can head on over to Patreon.com/backslash Sword and Staff Order 
for just $5 a month, you can get the Sword and Staff Uncut. So we hope you guys will go check that out. And I think that should about wrap us up today. Richie, you got anything else before we sign off? I've got so much more, but we don't have the time. Yeah, we never have the time. All right, guys. Well, hey, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you then. See you.